Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. The year is 1997, and this is an ugly podcast. A bug podcast. Would you like to know more? The movie, Starship Troopers. And welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I'm Paul Shear. And this is the podcast where we are trying to find the best movies of all time. And when we do, we're going to send them into outer space. That's not a joke. That is for real. And right now we are in the middle of our Heroes series going into our Villain series. And we're using our bridge movie to be Starship Troopers. Are they heroes? Are they villains? We don't know. But it's also our second week of... Verhoeven. We are going back to Verhoeven. We just did RoboCop. And Amy, there were so many great reactions to RoboCop. I finally saw some pictures of Peter Weller playing a trombone, like you told me uh, he did on the set. What? I didn't see those. I want to see those. I posted them on social media <gasps> and on the Discord, so you can get uh, looking there. It's from the RoboCop documentary, which is actually really good. I watched a lot of that in uh, in research, but I missed that one little moment. Uh, people really reacted in many different ways to the uh, the clip from Fatal Farm, which I also posted up on social media, on Discord as well. And we were in a weird moment because it also was Verhoeven's birthday. So there were a lot of love uh, in the last couple of weeks to Paul Verhoeven and what he does. And there was a great quote, and I wanted to bring it up to you before we talk about Starship Troopers. It was the idea that Paul Verhoeven makes comedies that people don't realize are comedies. Do you believe that? Oh, I do. I do, actually. That does seem to resonate. That does seem to resonate. Because what else would explain the fact that Paul Verhoeven makes movies that are almost universally considered to be bizarre when they come out and then wonderful a decade later? Like they just in Los Angeles so showed like uh, showgirls at Senespia, you know, where they screen movies in the cemetery. 
And it killed. I mean, I remember never hearing a good thing about Showgirls. And now all I hear is how wonderful Showgirls is. Well, but Showgirls has like a Rocky Horror energy to it, right? Where you love it because it is so bad. But I think... But what if it isn't? That's how I used to feel about Starship Troopers now. And now I realize that Starship Troopers is brilliant, not just like, you know, good lovable bad taste. Yes. I, I need to go see Showgirls because I feel like I never saw Showgirls. I didn't understand Showgirls probably either. I bet there is a very sincere intellectual reading of that movie that I completely missed. Because oh, if there's, there's one plenty. thing that's clear, Verhoeven's not dumb. And, and no. yet we always act like he comes out with these really insane spectacle movies for no reason. I know I get so frustrated sometimes when I post a thought on social media, like Twitter, and it's clearly sarcastic, and then people don't realize it, right? And I feel like, oh, is sarcasm dead? Do people not even understand? They're just reading black and white, and they just, they're not thinking about who's saying it, what is it saying, and why that wouldn't make any sense. And there's a part of me that thinks, oh, well, we live in a world where the craziest things now are put up as real, but also... I look at Verhoeven and I go, oh, he's doing something really interesting here. Between RoboCop, Showgirls, and Starship Troopers, there are choices being made here. Like, I think a lot of the times people will be like, oh, well, they're bad actors. Oh, they are overacting. But I'm beginning to realize all of these are choices, right? Like, if you look at that scene with the Ed 209 where he kills that guy, that is a comedy scene. Like, if that was on Mr. Show, that would be one of like the classic Mr. Show bits. And and I was thinking about that. I was like, oh, I think he is doing something very specific with his performances, getting things, and we'll get into that, I think, especially with this film, that are maybe not apparent to us at first because we're in it and we're expecting a certain thing. Like he's giving us RoboCop, which is in line with a Schwarzenegger movie, but yet it's so much deeper. Like this movie is in line with an ensemble action movie as well, but it's like, oh, but it feels fakey. It's like, oh no, no, he's saying more. Like it, it, the, the meaning we're being presented with like a McDonald's burger made by like a Michelin star chef, right? (laughs) You know, there's something about it where it's like, oh, it's, it is this, it looks the same, but it's way more complex, but because yeah, I I just, I have a lot more respect. Or we, we somehow convince ourselves that, the director who has a $102 million budget to do Starship Troopers couldn't afford a better cast of actors than people on 90210. Right. Yes. Like, and not the fact that he made a choice, that Matt Damon auditioned for this film and he made a, a different choice. A, a specific absolutely. choice. There's a lack of trust, I guess, a lack of faith that somebody knows what they're doing. I totally agree. And it's it's a real quick reading of something because we're not looking deeper. And I think a lot of the movies that we watch especially in this vein, action movies, we're never required to look that much deeper. We're just, we are given what we are told and then that's it, you know, yeah. and we go home. action and, movies where nobody asks, would you like to know more? Exactly, there you go. Uh, and by the way, I can't wait to talk about this. I just want to give one quick shout out because I do think it was something that we didn't really speak about and it's worth mentioning. And uh, that is back to the Ed 209 Uh, I want to just give a shout out to Phil Tippett, who did a lot of that stop motion animation work, Uh, that design, that work. A lot of people talked about that uh, on the discord. And I do think it is uh, we've talked in the past about, you know, puppetry and creatures. And that creature is an amazing creature. And the stop motion work there 
is really fun and impressive and cool. And, and that character has a lot going for it in the sense of even though it is just a machine, it has a personality. No, very true. And actually to tie this all together, you know, Phil Tippett, while he was making RoboCop, there were a lot of bad days on that set. Like we talked about one day on one of the worst days, Phil Tippett just kind of joked to everybody, what if we all make a dinosaur film? Because he was sick of dealing with these stop motion animation things. And Verhoeven was like, yes, I would love to make a dinosaur film. They came up with this idea, Verhoeven and Phil Tippett, of doing what they were considering to be like a, like almost, almost a near silent visceral dinosaur movie. Like if you made a, a documentary about watching dinosaurs kill each other. They sold this idea to Jeffrey Katzenberg. Jeffrey Katzenberg was like, okay, yeah, I'll make this dinosaur movie. But he wanted to make it like more of a Disney version of a dinosaur movie. So they all kind of drifted away from the project. I give this backstory to say that not long after, Phil Tippett got hired to make the dinosaurs for Jurassic Park. And so he is responsible for those. And because of all of that like talent that he had been building up and that, and that display that he was able to do with finally making these dinosaurs he'd been talking about forever... He was able to pull off the bugs in this movie, the amazing bugs in Starship Troopers that actually honestly look pretty good for 1997. Usually we watch a 1997 movie and I'm like, that CG is terrible. This CG on the bugs holds up. It does because it's simple, right? They're not super gooey. They are these like arachnid kind of characters that feel skeletal and weird. And uh, I really, I, I agree. I I think that it's very hard, but we've watched now two of his films back to back that you watch it and that's like, these things are, they're solid. I mean, there might be some things that you could tweak, but like the design look and feel are timeless. And I think, you know, why dance around it? Let's just get into it. So Amy, are you ready to unsplat it? The year is 1997, 1.5 billion people watch the televised funeral for Princess Diana. The Lion King debuts on Broadway. Did you ever see that, Amy? Did you ever see The Lion King on Broadway? No, I never did. Did you? I did. I saw it twice. I actually saw it in London and New York. Uh, was this with kids or without kids? When you had uh, kids It was without point? kids, but Julie Taymor did an amazing job. I mean, it was. it is truly, I've seen a few Julie Taymor productions, stage productions, and uh, it was like shockingly amazing. I think now we've gotten into like, and no offense, but like the little mermaid, like I've literally watched frozen at Disneyland and it was on the level, I think probably even a higher level than a Broadway show because it's like millions of dollar budgets just to recreate the sets and everything. Anyway, it was very good. And if you had a chance to see it, it's, it's, it's really good. Uh, Madeline Albright becomes the first female secretary of state in U.S. history. The bodies of 39 cult members of Heaven's Gate were discovered after they died by suicide in the hopes of hopping on that Hale-Bopp comet, not to be confused with uh, the Hanson uh, boys and their Hale-Bopp. Uh, uh, and the first book in the Harry Potter series is published. You read that, Amy? You read that book? Not at the time. Okay. But I did. eventually, eventually. Uh, and audiences are watching the following unspooled films. They are watching Titanic, Contact, Men in Black, Is Bayou, Boogie Nights, and Starship Troopers. Wow, what a year. 1997. That's our next book, Amy. Our first <laughs> and next book, The Year of 1997. Uh, who is in this film? What is it about? Tell us. Starship Troopers. 
It is, yes. Another pairing of Paul Verhoeven and the screenwriter Edward Neumeyer, you know, 10 years basically to the day after they released RoboCop. Uh, this movie takes its title from Robert A. Heinlein's 1959 novel of the same name that's about this future society where people must earn the right to call themselves a citizen. Even if to earn that right, it means you have to join the military, fly to space, and fight a deadly army of bugs and get your body totally destroyed in a painful bloody death before you even figure out who you're actually in love with in your own complicated love triangle. Uh, to Heinlein, this sacrifice for the greater good is a very good thing. To Verhoeven and Neumeier, it is dangerous and bad and fascistic. To the audiences watching this movie, it was very, very hard to tell at all. Take a listen. In every age, there is a cause worth fighting for. But in the future, the greatest threat to our survival will not be man at all. Starship Troopers was released on November 7th, 1997, and it did not do well. People at the time were confused by it. They blamed the actors. We're talking Casper Van Dien, Dina Meyer, Denise Richards, Jake Busey, Patrick Muldoon, Neil Patrick Harris, most of whom came from teen soap operas like Melrose Place and 90210. One critic granted, why did someone have to dig up Doogie Howser? I thought we were finally rid of the runt. But just as Neil Patrick Harris has gone on to be reappraised, so too has this movie particularly in the wake of the War on Terror that started in 2001, in which this retro World War II propaganda tone that Verhoeven thought he was parodying got resurrected. It once again became daily life. Uh, what else was in the zeitgeist? As Paul alluded to, there was a sentimental song about early death, the spritz of patriotism that was all over the radios. The song could play over any one of these characters' funerals. It is, once again on the show, Elton John and Candle in the Wind. Called out to our country And you whispered to those in pain Now you belong to heaven And the stars spell out your name And it seems to me You lived your life like a candle in the wind Never fading with the sunset Oh, yeah, there you go. I mean, that was a song. That was a song that was played a lot that year. I remember that very, very much. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple. 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
Amy, you and I, before we started recording the RoboCop episode, had a very strong debate about should we do two back-to-back Verhoeven movies? And I was nervous. I was like, you know what? I just don't know if we'll have enough to talk about because we'll be kind of examining him in RoboCop and, and is there enough here? And I think that back to our beginning of our conversation, I really forgot about how good this movie was, or maybe I never realized how good it was because I thought, oh yeah, it's interesting. It's anti-war, but it's kind of like cheesy too, right? I'm so glad we're doing this back to back. I think it shows an evolution from RoboCop to this. I think this is a what he's playing around with in RoboCop, you see a much fuller version here. And, you know, we're starting off the same way, which is these opening sequences that are, I guess, on a tablet, right? And man, this is 1997. And he's showing us the culture we live in now. Catchy little headlines. Do you want to know more? And I think throughout this movie, what blew my mind were these moments where not only did he predict something, but he did it in such a way that I was like, this feels Jules Verne-esque. Like that he's just, he's able to see where we're going. And I and I bring it to that moment of the Tucker Carlson kind of scene where the guy with the bow tie is arguing with the with the older woman. That, uh, oh yeah, it, this one right here about whether or not bugs are smart. Federal scientists struggle to explain the intelligent military actions of the arachnids. When a colony reaches a certain size, 300 generations or something, it gets smarter. Insects make- with intelligence? Have you ever met one? I can't believe I am hearing this nonsense. Don't just this wait is the most ridiculous conversation I have ever had. There is some kind of bug that we haven't seen yet. A leadership cast, a, a hive brain. Brain bugs? Frankly, I find the idea of a bug that thinks offensive. That scene right there, to me, was like, wow. In 1987, we weren't at that level that we are at now. And the way that they frame those scenes, everything about that, like that was a moment that really went, oh, he is, he's just seeing the evolution of society and humanity. Like, yes, on the, on the very basic level, he's seeing this idea like war makes everybody a fascist. Great. Like, and that's, I think, easy to see. But I think forward, he's looking at all these little things and these, this opening of the computer screens and you want to know more. It's that culture of giving you a taste, giving you something, a sizzle. Like we don't even know, like, and it's, it's getting you intrigued. It's not about like giving you more information. It's kind of treating the news like coming attractions. It's treating the, the, there's no news. There's no real story. It's all headlines that are bite-sized and, and exciting and titillating like news has become entertainment and i i think he was trying to do that a little bit in robocop and it was there but this is way more realized and that's all i'm saying is i think this is a great evolution from robocop to this and i can't wait to talk about it no you're right like i'm trying to imagine what it would have been like to see this in 1997 because i i will be honest i didn't see this in 1997 i saw this cast and i had the attitude that I'm sort of mocking myself now, where I was like, what? No way is that going to be any good. I don't believe that movie's good. I'm not going to see that. And part of it is, of course, the way this movie was sold, which it was just sold like a straight-up action film. Right. I mean, I'm sure I saw that trailer. I know it was at the movies a lot in 1997, but I was like, absolutely not. That looks like dumb garbage. But I do think even if I had seen it at the time, I would have thought it looked like 
a science fiction movie, I would have thought it left a kind of a strange taste in my mouth. Like, that's weird. Like, man, these deaths are really gory. And I don't know how I feel about the fact that I don't know how to feel about any of these characters. I would have kind of felt murky and strange and probably blamed it on the film being bad. But what I wouldn't have done is I wouldn't have recognized it as the reality I was living in today, which is how I felt when I saw this movie, like, in around 2010. I was like, oh, 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 he made a movie that felt like it was about the present that I was about to live in, but it wasn't the present that we were living in when it came out. It's interesting because on the surface, what I really remember about this, because I did see it in the theater, I saw everything in the theater. Um, I believe I own this on uh, DVD, um, was really cool, violent scenes, like action scenes were awesome. The plot was kind of like, eh, and the acting was bad. And I know a lot of the talk, and maybe it was the talk that was coming at me, but I believe like a lot of the, there was a lot of conversation about the shower scene. Everyone's naked in this shower scene, right? And um, and I like it was like a dumb, it was like the same way that um, Dennis Franz's ass was a big part of NYPD Blue discourse. Like NYPD Blue was probably one of the most, cable shows ever to be put on network, you know, it was a kind of the bridge moment, right? Because like there wasn't really cable or streaming at that point, but the conversation was like, they showed his ass. It's like, well, no, the show is like, it's not about showing Dennis Franz's ass. And this movie was like, everybody's naked in the same scene. And I think what's so interesting about that naked scene uh, in the shower is like, it shows us a communal co-ed shower situation where Gender is not a problem. We see that in RoboCop too. Men and women are side by side. No one is viewed as weaker. There's no really, a, there's no real slights to anyone. Like even on the football team, like there's an equal, a gender equality there. And I would say a lot of the nudity in this movie isn't sexualized. And it's really interesting to do that. Like, you know, there's no, like in a movie like this, you think it might be. And I think maybe why it was shocking was because it was just like, oh, I'm just taking off my clothes. Now, the behind the scenes of that is, you know, Verhoeven's like, hey, everybody, let, we got to do this shower scene. How do you all feel about it? And Dina Meyer is like, well, I'll do it if you do it. And Verhoeven's like, yeah, I'll do it. And the DP's like, I'll do it too. And the DP's like, grew up in a nudist camp. And then all of a sudden they're like taping the scene naked. And, and they're like, wait, 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 we don't want it. You guys naked too. But I think it's the idea like, we'll do it. You do it. And there's something really cool about that scene. That's that's the stripes kind of like, where are you from? Why are you doing this? What's going on? It's the most unsexual conversation and it's not titillating, but it's really interesting that that was, but the takeaway was like, they're just nude. You're seeing people nude, or at least that's what I remember people talking about. Well, right. No, you're exactly right. Like that was what people were talking about. Like, and they were talking about it in a way that misses the point that you were just making. You know, they're like, this movie has boobs. Therefore, this movie is leering. Therefore, this movie is like sexualizing everybody when the scene itself is actually not really. Not really. Like, it's kind of, yeah, the camera's sort of passing through. You know, Joss Falcano, this DP that you're talking about, he's the same one who did those long conversational tracking shots we were talking about in RoboCop. He comes back for this. And yes, he gets naked. And he is doing that same kind of single take thing, going through this shower scene, listening to everybody talk. And this conversation that it seems like people are ignoring in a way because they're so focused on, like, boobs and titties. And I guess boobs are titties. is mm-hmm. setting up 
this whole sacrifice that people are making because they need to be citizens. Ah, well, we all have one thing in common. We were all stupid enough to sign up for mobile infantry. Breckenridge, what's your excuse? Oh, my family's all farmers. I hate farming. I mean, uh, mobile infantry is like pure picnic by comparison. All right, so they grow them big and dumb on the farm planet. <laughs> and pretty! I like this! Jonathan, what about you? Oh, I'm going into politics, and you know, you gotta be a citizen for that, so here I am. Ah, you want some responsibility? Yeah! Shijumi, come on, let's keep it going. I got into Harvard, but my father says forget it, it's gonna cost an arm and a leg, you know? So, if I serve, Federation pays my way. <laughs> I wanna have babies. You know, it's a lot easier to get a license if you serve, so. I'm going career, officer's training, all the way. Ah, future Sky Marshal. All right, Rico, your turn. Who asked you to be so nosy? What, I'm the bad guy? I'm gonna be a writer, you know? A writer's got a right to be nosy. Hey, Flores, you know Rico from Buenos Aires. What's his story? Oh, uh, he's here because of a girl. I mean, if you could listen to that scene, what you're hearing is, like, these people uh, are signing up to join the military not because they necessarily want to kill things, but it's the only way they can, you know, go into politics, become a politician and vote. It's the only way they can make money and get off the farm. It's like the only way they can possibly put themselves in line for having a baby. This like tiny aside that it's like easier to have a kid and to get a permit to have a child if you like join the military. And it's all of these people giving these sort of ordinary reasons for why they'd want to join the military. And it's all people that we're going to see get absolutely torn to pieces in a little bit. Completely right. like destroyed and ripped apart. And the sadness of that kind of gets lost because people are just like, titties, which is something that Verhoeven has always been really fascinated by. I mean, he makes this movie, you know, already being very aware that in American audiences, like sex scenes, well, this is his quote, I haven't seen any sex scenes in American films that are anything other than completely boring. A bare, a bare breast is more difficult to get through the censors than a body riddled with bullets. And he had... He was already so horrified by the what kind of difference in how American censors treat sex versus violence. He was like in Ho in Holland where he grew up, you know, sex is totally normal on screen. It's violence that's not normal to see on screen. Here it's totally opposite, which I think is why, you know, it's it's taken me a while to try to understand his filmography that it like veers from like super violent films to super sexual films, but he is like interested in this idea of what we find shocking. And then he takes it to such a dare that he almost kind of risks, he's willing to risk people missing this important conversation in his movie to just test again this idea that audiences are only going to be looking at the boobs and not listening to anything. Well, I mean, you're right. And, and I think, again, this movie paints a very subtle picture of like this military dictatorship, right? Where we are looking, like, like we said, we are in this world where you can't live a full life unless you have been in the military. And ultimately, all these people are cannon fodder for these bugs. And and they're being they're, raised with this like idea of what democracy is. Yes. Let's sum up. This year, we explored the failure of democracy. How the social scientists brought our world to the brink of chaos. We talked about the veterans, how they took control and impose the stability that has lasted for generations since. You know these facts, but have I taught you anything of value this year? Hmm? You, why are only citizens allowed to vote? It's a reward. What the Federation gives you for doing federal service. No. 
No. Something given has no value. Look, when you vote, you are exercising political authority. You're using force. And force, my friends, is violence. The supreme authority from which all other authority is derived. Uh, my mother always said violence never solves anything. Really? I wonder what the city fathers of Hiroshima would say about that. All right, so my question to you is because it is the summer of Tom Cruise. Is this kind of like a future version of Top Gun in a way, right? I mean, is this like, because this movie is intentionally like based on a book, the Robert Heinlein book, Starship Troopers, which Verhoeven's like, I read a couple chapters and I was like, ugh, it's boring and sad. I I don't want to read it. Explain the rest to me. And that book is super right wing military uh, book. And he essentially satirizing that book. And, and in many respects, I think, and these are not my own ideas. These are ideas that have been out there for a while. Like this idea, like this is like a Lenny Riefenstahl film. This is a, the idea of like, we're showing you, like we want to show you the heroism here. We want to cast it with these people that look beautiful and make you want to fight bugs. Right. Uh, I, but I do think that unintentionally, or, you know, what Tom Cruise has always talked about this idea, like uh, when he talks about top gun, like he didn't think it was going to get people to join the military, but it did because it was like showed sexy people doing fun things. And the enemy was a question mark. These bugs are a question mark. It's not an enemy that with a face, right? Like we can all get behind this bug. Right. And like when, you know, when they touch the, 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 the big bug at the end, it's like, it's afraid. Like, yeah, you know, it's like, it's the enemy here is just as, nothing as top gun and it has it has similarities in that sense of i was thinking about this a lot because it's just been all over like i was like oh this is a this is in many respects like a spiritual successor to top gun if you put better actors in it uh would it have the same vibe as top well gun? right well because it shares one actor with top gun you know who we're talking about like it shares yeah. Uh, Michael Ironside, who plays this guy giving the speech, who plays like Lieutenant Gene Razgak, who like in the book, the story of like him losing his arm is that he's a guy who was a veteran. And one day his ship was trying to pull away from this war and they couldn't get out because like his arm was caught in the door. And like because the door couldn't close, the plane couldn't escape. And since the plane couldn't escape, all of these military people were about to die until he was like, cut off my arm, just cut off my arm. And so he sacrificed his arm to save this entire ship of people. And there's this kind of detail that you just noticed throughout the film where pretty much everybody older than these kids who's connected to the service is missing a limb missing an arm. You could see these visible scars on everybody's body. Like nobody has gotten out of these previous wars without being maimed in some way. Um, but yeah, the idea of Michael Ironside being this guy to me kind of makes me think of Tom Cruise doing Born on the Fourth of July after Top Gun being like, no, 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 no. I want to tell this kind of story. You've interpreted me as being this guy, but this is how I'm really feeling. Because we should say like, You're right. We should give some kind of backstory on this book because the original Starship Troopers is a book that was like on the Marine Corps professional reading program. And what that means is like, you know, if you're a Marine, they give you this list of books that they highly recommend you read. The Navy does the same thing. And it's like you're supposed to read a few books every year. And if you stay in the service long enough, you will eventually read pretty much everything on the list. Um, Starship Troopers by Robert A. Highland was on this list. Like the Navy recommended it and the Marine recommended it, that everybody in the service should read this book. And a backstory on it is that Robert A. Highland, I mean, first, one of the few things you should know about him is like he's from this family that, you know, 
claims in their lineage that they have fought in every single American war going all the way back to 1776. And he is such a patriot at this point in his life that when he, you know, moves into a house, he gets to choose the address. He chooses to live in an address 1776 because he's so patriotic. Huh. Um, he goes to the Naval Imagine Academy. Imagine looking for that. Like, I, I know it's hard I to know. find a house, but man, really hard to find a house if you're looking <laughs> just for 1776. I know. Well, he was an engineer, so he got to design his own house on a street that didn't exist. And like, oh, great. Well, you get to name your, your number of your house then. And he's like, 1776. Uh, but also, like, yeah, he went to the Naval Academy. Um, he was working as a civilian Navy engineer, like, during World War II. He was actually uh, buddies with Isaac Asimov. They both worked as engineers in the same area. Um, he also, you know, started to write, like, all his science fiction stories around this time. Like, his books, by the way, like, he basically presaged the waterbed. He presaged the cell phone. He was imagining all kind of stuff, just like Asimov would do. And um, he considered himself politically like he was kind of the he was kind of like a libertarian who was actually conservative, but called himself a libertarian. Um, and anyway, in the late 1950s, there was this activist group that was called the National Committee for a Sane Nuclear Policy, and they wanted to end nuclear testing because they thought, you know, this radioactive fallout is highly toxic. It's going to be hurting people. We have to stop this. Uh, Isomov agreed with them. Isomov was like, yeah, we should not be doing nuclear testing. We've seen the bomb drop. It's been over a decade. We know what it does. We don't need to do it. Um, and Eisenhower agreed. Eisenhower was like, yeah, you're right. I, we, let's put a moratorium on doing nuclear testing. And Highland was like, even if this nuclear fallout is a hundred times worse than we think it is, it is still better than, quote, communist enslavement. So he was so riled up about this fact that we weren't going to be doing nuclear testing anymore and that Russia was still going to be doing it, breaking treaties. Uh, you know, why he was writing these essays that, of course, were quoting, you know, give me liberty or give me death, the thing that everybody quotes when they're like a bold truth teller. Um, he tried to start a petition uh, to Eisenhower that we needed to get back into nuclear testing. He got 500 people to sign it, which was not enough. So Eisenhower ignored it and was like, cool, I'm still stopping nuclear testing. And so finally, Heinlein was so mad that he wrote Starship Troopers. This was his response to this. He like wrote this book that was about, listen, people should sacrifice for the, themselves for the common good. Maybe a little bit of nuclear radiation is not that bad for the common good. You know, and it was a book that was so adamant, you know, about this same thing. You know, like there's a kid, his name is Johnny Rico. He's Filipino in the book. He's named Juan. Uh, the arachnids are kind of written to be like communists. Um, and the book is really just about watching Rico mature from like a child into a warrior. It's like this coming of age book, you know, about like getting over your teenage decadence and becoming the kind of sacrificial hero that, you know, the country needs. It's kind of like if Rebel Without a Cause ended up with James Dean joining the army and being like, the army is fantastic. Um, and so, like, this book then, like, was rejected by its first publisher, became huge, and then became on the recommended list for the Marine Corps. This idea of, like, this is the kind of soldier we need. This, like, sacrifice yourself. Like, it doesn't matter what happens to you. Obey, kill, fight listen to discipline. It's okay to have people get like executed if they misbehave. Like all of this stuff is in this book that has then been part of the military culture up until 2020. They only took this book off the reading list in 2020. Wow. That was a lot of history, but that's sort of what Verhoeven is combating when he makes a movie about this book. Well, you know, he's barely making a movie about this book because he 
is taking the book and spinning it on its side, right? He's looking at it from a different point of view. And I think going back to this idea of not understanding sarcasm, people watch this movie, probably the way I watched it, and thought, oh, it's a pretty good action movie, but the actors are bad and this and that. And, you know, there is something about, and I and I, I really hesitate to do this because I don't like um, shitting on people's performances. But I want to say, like, there, I think Casper Van Diem gets a lot of flack for this movie, for being um, flat, right? Um, I think it's intentional, or he's directed that way, right, on some level. Um, he's not directed to play any layers to Johnny Rico, yes, that's for like, sure. Johnny Rico is a blunt instrument. And in many respects, so is Steven Seagal. So is, I'm talking about contemporaries at this time, right? They have personality, right? So it's like Schwarzenegger, he's got a voice, he's got a little bit of a charm, right? You know, so when Will Smith punches that alien in Independence Day, he's like, welcome to Earth. It's like, oh, they got a little personality. They strip Johnny Rico of that personality and charisma. He is all just, he's like the unpainted car. Like he has the, like, it's almost like that last part wasn't injected into him. And I think that that, you know, like when he's dealing with death and things like that, like it is almost shocking how vacant he is in those scenes. It, it is, um, and he's, and I would say it's not a choice for everyone because I think Dina Meyer is fantastic in this way. I love Dina Meyer. Um, oh yeah, I, I, think, I will. We need to definitely get into Dina Meyer in a bit because I love yeah, her in this too. I got to work with her once, and she's the fucking best. But uh, she's awesome. Uh, but I think that the 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 you know, and I also look. I want to call out. This was the summer of Jake Busey. What happened to Jake Busey? Because I love him in contact. I love him here. Uh, he really kind of had a quick pop. He was an in and out kind of a guy. Um, I think and, his intensity really works, though. I like it. When I it love it. Up. I love him in here. Yeah, he's yeah. fun. Like you, you buy him. Like, but he's got that personality. He's got that energy. That kind of, um, that kind of thing. You know, Michael Ironside does. So it's like there, there's a choice here. I think that they're making for sure. But there's something in the way that Casper Vendian has either you know been selected, maybe left to dangle, that works for the movie. While mm-hmm. it sacrifices it him. Like, I, I think of the scene where he tells his mom that he is definitely, definitely, definitely going to enlist in the military. And she's like, does it mean that much to you? Johnny, why won't you change your mind? Does citizenship mean that much to you? Well, yeah, sure. I hope so. I hope you don't ruin your life over some silly little girl who wants to look handsome in a uniform. Don't talk about Carmen that way. Johnny. I mean, the way he answers her, maybe it's bad acting, maybe it's great acting. But what you hear in it is like, he has no idea why he's doing this. He really doesn't know. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. 
Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. There's a weird effect watching Casper Van Dien at the center of this movie where, like, He's handsome to look at. He cuts this really strong figure. Like, almost nobody has a jaw like him, except, like, Rutger Hauer, who was also, like, a person that, like, Verhoeven loved to work with. And when and he comes across on screen as, like, a shallow kid who doesn't really know what he's doing. And I think that maybe if he was an actor who was able to ask the audience for more empathy, it would be be perhaps a more confusing film. Like it would change the film in some way if you felt like this was a good actor that you cared about, right? Well, I think it would carry over to Tom Cruise territory where there is something about his performance that is slightly off that allows you to look through the the skewed lens that this movie has, right? Like, and I know I've heard people say, well, no, he's directing the propaganda film and he's casting it with the most attractive people because you're like, oh my gosh, they're attractive. I want to be like them. But I also believe that that slight deadness in the performance is the crack in the mirror that uh, this is a, a crack in the window that lets you see through the other side. I guess a window you can see through other sides. I don't have a metaphor, but all I'm saying is that that that's your entry point to go. All is not right here. This is not a movie that I should be leaving the theater going like, yeah, I want to be like him. That's no, a movie going. Yeah, I think you're exactly right, because I think, yeah, if it was like a Tom Cruise, the audience would give this character a lot more empathy. Mm-hmm. But like this character doesn't get empathy from anybody in the film anyway. Everybody in the film's okay, pretty much if he dies, more or less. Like his friends would be a little sad, but like Michael Ironside is fine with it. Most people are sort of fine with it. Like he's not considered a special snowflake individual in this movie. He's like one more fighter who can yeah. do like cool backflips and stuff. But like in the logic of this world, he is cannon fodder. And I think that if a if a stronger actor was anchoring it, you'd be like, no, but this guy's special and I care about him. And you're just not supposed to feel that way. Right. Like, I think that this movie is supposed to keep you a little bit at distance from an emotional connection, because I believe that this movie really works in that final moment that I already talked about, where uh, Neil Patrick Harris touches the face of the creature and goes, it's scared. And everyone cheers. And like, wait a second. That's that's the winning moment of the movie, right? That's the winning moment. Like, and you know, there's a little postscript there. The, there's no end. Like, this is they're gonna continue to fight, right? It's this is like our occupation that we've had here for many years, that you know, as a part of like our US military has been overseas for many years. But there's that. These are the moments that we're like, wait a second, do I feel good about this? And this is why we're talking about this as a bridge between heroes and villains, because are they villains? Are they heroes? Who, who, what are we doing here? Are, is the goal to scare people? I mean, yes, and they're violent, but 
are they violent? Are they just brainless? They're just attack. Like, do they? It's a tricky line, and I think the he wants you to wrestle with that a little bit. I think you want he's wanting you to walk out, and I I don't think it's as layered as people think. I mean, it is layered, but it's, I don't think it's hard to parse. It's there. It's it. There are uneasy moments here. And I think if you don't think to yourself in these like final moments, like when they're jamming a prod up this bug's ass at the end with a censored bar on it, like, what the fuck? Like, what's going on? Like, it should make you go like, did we win? Did we lose? At what cost? Like, what what is happening? And I think you should walk out weird. And if you walk out weird, that's probably why people didn't like the movie, because it's like, I don't know how that made me feel. That wasn't good. I feel like you tricked me. Like, I... I was supposed. I was feeling like bugs are bad. Now I'm like, are they? And fuck you for doing that to me. Yeah, totally. I mean, this is a thing once that Verhoeven said that I think is really smart. He said American movies are non-confrontational. They're easy on the audience. They're pleasant to the audience. They're escapist. They don't confront reality much, or they don't integrate reality to a strong and harsh degree, like life is. And that kind of sounds like he's talking about, you know, blockbusters and stuff like Easy Heroes. Oh, we did it. We saved the day. But I feel like he's also talking about, you know, even our Oscar films, because I feel like our Oscar films can be pretty congratulatory vitamin pills or it's like, did you know that war is bad? Did you know that discrimination is bad? Like we gravitate still to films that tell us kind of what we already know and they don't really challenge how we feel. And I do feel like that's such a problem with being a a living person and an audience member in the modern era, you know, like that we have to keep saying, you know, depiction is not endorsement. And even though we say it 90 times, and even though that line is like a cliche, every single time there's a movie that depicts something that makes people uncomfortable, there's a freak out. Is it endorsement? What's happening? Like it's, it, it's, it feels like this is a lesson that is incredibly hard to sink in. And I don't know if it's just this country, I kind of don't want to think Americans are that exceptional that it would be just us who is this hard at interpreting films. It's yeah. got to be common. But like, you know, this is just the culture that I know the best. It, it is it is kind of confusing and maddening. Like, I do find it really aggravating when I like go see a movie that is framed as like bold and daring. And it just reasserts a very basic opinion about being nice to people. Like, I don't find that particularly challenging. And and I think it's kind of, I don't know. I think it makes, I think films that are like, discrimination is bad. And here's a movie about why discrimination is bad. And then you leave being like, yeah, discrimination is bad. It just makes me think of like, I don't know, an RBG action figure or something. Like something that like means well, but is incredibly useless and actually hasn't accomplished anything. Right. And like, and I just, I want more. Like, I I really think it's valuable to be challenged I mean, Verhoeven said, you know, the characters in my movies are never clearly heroic. He's like, the main ones, even Michael Douglas and Basic Instinct are flawed people. And that is my belief in life, that no, that there is no white knight, that everybody is part of the shadow, that will never fight the shadow and the evil inside of us if we continually suppress this reality and refuse to show it. And he's yeah. basically saying like our movies that are like heroes are great and everybody's wonderful. And like, we're all on the same side that this is bad. Do nothing to make the world a better place. It's only by recognizing our susceptibility to falling for the propaganda in his own films that will make us become better audience members and better people. And so that's why I, th- I do feel like this film is a dirty trick that made people mad. And I love it at the same time. 
Absolutely. And I mean, I think that one of the things also about it is like, I mean, it's basically saying like, if you're a hot, like young, dumb, like young, dumb, hot people, like we'll follow them anywhere. Right. Like there's a, there's an element there too. Like it, like Reek, everyone, that shower scene that you played, like everyone has a reason. I want to have kids. I want to have, I want to go into politics. I, I want to do this. Rico only is there because he likes a girl, right? He's following a hot girl, even though Dina Meyer is equally as gorgeous as uh, Denise Richards um, and and has so much more personality. And I think that there's yeah. something really interesting about that idea. Like he can't even see, like he's so blinded by like, just the most basic it makes, it, to me it makes his like fixation on Carmen seem even more arbitrary and shallow because yes. Dina is so cool like she plays the sports he does she tackles people he does all the fancy flips she's like a hardcore tackler yeah she's like smart smart loving brave bold courage courageous like she's so cool like I like she's all I, I was almost watching this being wondering like is she too cool is she too charismatic? Because like, sure, you don't care that much when most people die. But when she dies, like her death here, it it is actually awful. And it is because I love her in this performance so much. Johnny, I'm dying. I'm dying. No, you're going to be all right, Diz. It's all right. Because I got to have you. <laughs> Johnny, don't let me go. And the way he even shoots it, she's like covered in her own blood. There's nothing beautiful about it. Like, you know, there's beautiful deaths in movies where you have like an artful scratch and you're bleeding out. That is like a gross death. It's like, there's this woman who we've been appreciating watching her like run and jump and leap and hug and be bold and throw him down on the bed and like take all these chances and like watching her just her, watching this vibrancy get destroyed is awful. I mean, is she too good for this movie? Is she, or is she ex- like, I can't even you decide. You need it. You need, I think what the, for the overall story, for everything to run that three-way triangle, that love triangle needs to be there because he is choosing an archetype over an actual experience. And Michael Ironside is the one who literally says that. Like, don't, you know, don't. Uh, oh, I even pulled it. I even pulled it because he like gives him that advice while they're at this party. And like Jake Busey is playing an electric violin. And it kind of feels like. I love that party. Yeah. It feels like a Civil War party. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? It doesn't mm-hmm. feel modern. It feels ancient. It feels like, oh, man, we have been having these kind of parties forever. Go. You once asked me for advice. Want some now? Yes, sir. Lieutenant, HQ's on the con. Never pass up a good thing. And I think like that moment there is really interesting because, yes, he's telling him like he's teaching him something there, but I think Rico is a blank slate. Right. And he's learning at the end. I think that what this movie may miss out on is like a 
a hesitation from Rico at the end. Like, is what he is doing good? Is what he is doing bad? We never really get that, but I think he's learning to be more of a less of a blunt instrument as he goes on. Because I think that moment where he has to kill Michael Ironside after Michael Ironside, like Michael Ironside is a man who has humanity and is for the war and is militaristic, just like Dina Meyer, but is also a human being. Like he is more than, and, um, you know, he's like, think for yourself. And he's saying a lot of jingoistic military terms, but he also is someone who cares about his soldiers. I'm going to give you beer. I'm going to have you, you, Go have sex. Go play football. Like, there's something interesting there about his character. Like, he's seen the ways to come. In a way, he's like, I've seen the... Mo- he, he's like passing he, on humanity rather than warmongering, right? Like, know, I think yeah. that's, that's, yeah, that, I think that's what his end result is, right? He's like, yes, this is a brutal, bloody battle. Don't align yourself with, like, that is our job. But just don't be that. Like, you must be more to be, like, he's teaching him how to be a person. Like, in, see what's in front of you. Just don't, don't question. Because I think he is a guy who is dumb. I mean, Rico can't do the ESP. His math is like, what is it, in the 30s? Like, he, we know he's dumb. He's a blunt instrument. Like, you, if you do the run and the jump, I'll get your back. Like, he is, he is a perfect uh, soldier in this world because he will just do as he's told. And... What I think that this movie does is kind of show a little bit more of an evolution that he will actually, I mean, become a better soldier by actually questioning, thinking more, moving forward. Because his original intent to stay and fight was only that his parents were killed uh, or along those lines. But uh, I think at the end, he really is leading the right way. He's a good leader, not just a get in there, not like the other guy hiding in the fucking fridge. Oh, yeah. He's he's a brave leader. He's not like the general in the fridge. I mean, the generals don't come across well here. Like if there's one thing that we kind of glean from their military tactics, it's like they just don't have any. They're just like, here's a bunch of people start shooting. Like there's not even there's not scenes in this where you really see the military do anything brilliant. They keep showing up on on like planets and being like, oh, oh, whoops, more people than we thought. Oh, I guess we're all gonna die. Like, and they yeah, maybe there's a little bit of like, you three go this way, you four though go that way. But it's not like clever military tactics at the slightest. Right. It's just underprepared shooting. They have this one idea. You have a gun. You go in there, and when that doesn't work, everybody dies. Like, so the military strategy does not come across very well. I I kind of think. I don't like Ironside as much as you do in what he's trying to do. I think Ironside is more like these kids are all going to die. Maybe I'll help this guy get an extra 10 minutes of joy before he's dead. Like, I don't, I think he's sort of, I think he has maybe more of like a cynical, we're all going to die. None of it matters approach to this. And I kind of find the idea that Johnny, who is dumb, that he becomes the best ideal of a soldier at the end. I don't know if it's because he's any better at it. I just think he's angrier and like less, he has nothing left to live for, really. He's just like, all right, kill everything. Like when he's in that last newsreel and they're like, this is the kind of soldier you want to be. I find him terrifying. Like, I, I think he's made this really sad evolution. We have the ships. We have the weapons. We need soldiers. Soldiers like Lieutenant Stack Lumbreeser. We're in the target area now, Captain. 
and Captain Carmen Abanez. This is the captain speaking. All personnel prepare for drop. Soldiers like Private Ace Levy and Lieutenant John Rico. Come on, you wait! You want to live forever! We need you all. Service guarantees citizenship. It, it, but it's like, it's weird. You're like, this guy is the hero? Like, this guy is what we should be? This guy who's like, you know, not smart, accidentally gets people killed, like, does his best, isn't like a villain. Isn't a villain villain in that, like, he's outwardly trying to cause evil. I mean, I think that one of the smart things about this story is it's not like, it's not like everyone who's in the military is evil. You know, that's like a really immature no, yeah. way of saying it. It's like people... People like Rico destroy themselves for causes that they don't understand, which I think is a much more pointed idea. Well, I think that that's the point, right? We often don't question things and we're in a moment and we start to do all this stuff. I think what we're seeing in our country is people are questioning everything and sometimes the wrong things because of the Internet you know, everybody is an epidemiologist and everyone's like, well, why are we putting these things up our nose? What could the government put in there? And I think questioning is good. And I also think questioning can be bad if it's done by dumb people. Uh, right. You know, like, but, you know, it's sort of like once you open up the gate, like, well, things should be questions like, well, why don't we question that, too? Well, what does that mean? Why do magnets work? It's a quote uh, insane clown posse. You know, it's like like there is there is a limit to it as well. Right. So it's sort of like it's almost gone around full circle. It's like question authority has now become question like everything. Yeah. Or and, I am the authority. I am the authority yes. of this nation state of just me. Yes. And that, and that to me, I feel like is another level of something that is equally dangerous. You know, it's like, uh, yeah. So it's like, I know we think we're saying the same thing, like on a, some level, like it's good to question authority, but it's also you know, it's also like dangerous. <laughs> you know, it's like it's dangerous because yeah. now I think that that's been weaponized. Yeah. And you know, as a matter of question, everything. And then what do you like? What do you like now? You know, so that's like the new version of it. Like it's like having the ability or having choices become weaponized. So you can basically get back to the same exact thing, which is just follow here, because we can all if we all question the same thing, then we're all on the same page. Well, exactly. And I think that's why I find like the giant bugs in this movie so chilling. I mean, we've talked about this before. The idea of people killing nameless hordes of bugs is not exclusive to this movie. Like, I think most, you know, so many superhero movies end with something kind of like this. Maybe they're alien bugs or robot bugs or whatever. But it's like nameless hordes of giant shiny things that well, get I mean, mowed yeah, like down a, yeah. like endlessly in like PG-13 movies, which I find to be, you know... I find to be incredibly creepy and immoral the way that like the 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 event of the the end of the first Avengers right like it's basically a starship well, but that's troopers been ha- but that's been happening because people are like well it's, why isn't Superman saving everyone in all the buildings we can't kill real people anymore we got to kill like, like you know it's like well all right yeah. well now it, like then we lose we lose the thread and then, you know it's like it starts to become like well we can't have stakes because if we have stakes then it's not a PG thirteen movie but we can't have stakes and then we just wind up killing like fucking Cloverfield monsters and and snakes on jet skis, whatever the fuck it is. And it's like, and it gets boring. It's like I'm watching robots fight around buildings. Like, I don't care. Exactly. I don't... And, like, and like, I appreciate that, like, that, that I think like this movie is able to play both sides. It's like, we see them treating them like faceless hordes where it's okay to kill them. And it's like, you know, he lets you watch a version of this movie that is that, 
But I do think he gives you tiny moments where you feel bad for the bugs. Like, like there's a moment where they're like shooting a bug on one of the islands. And I was watching it with the subtitles on. Um, mm-hmm. Here, I'll play this clip as I, as I say what the subtitles were. Okay, the closed captions say, bug shrieking, bug whimpering, shrieking weakly. I mean, that's vulnerable and yeah. really sad. Like, well, I mean, the, the most the most humanity, like I, I felt that humanity for that bug at the end. I mean, that bug is like it it is sad. It's the only bug that really has a face that we get to see. Yeah. how It's got so many eyes, so many eyes. And they're all kind of wet and quavering and kind of sad. Like it, it has a little bit of like a sad anime look to it. And, totally and yes, it has the big vagina face, too. But like it, it, the idea that I think that's such a screwed up moment that we're like happy that the bug is afraid but that's a pretty basic emotion it's like they didn't even occur to them that a bug would have a basic emotion like fear i just think that like because they're faceless because they have no names because we don't know what they're doing because we didn't even really examine them at all we keep on saying in the movie we need to find out what's in their head we're going to get in their head we never do it's just we're just going to go back to that planet and kind of claim a victory and there's no end game it's like this planet is full of hundreds of thousands of these bugs there's no there's no victory here. There's no victory. The end is just is excitement that we get to torture one of them. Yeah, and and like Verhoeven sticks so closely to making a movie that would fit into this world that I think it's you know, he he I think he really does take a risk of like maybe not even putting in enough of it to totally make his own point where like you get this little moment, you know, when there's like a newspaper reporter walking around and he's sort of like what, is is there any reason the bugs might be doing this? And he just gets loudly yelled down. So, Trooper, you're not too worried about fighting the arachnids? Hey, shoot a nuke down a bug hole. You got a lot of dead bugs. I just right? hope it's not over before we get some. <laughs> <laughs> some say the bugs were provoked by the intrusion of humans into their natural habitat. That a live and let live policy is preferable to war with the bugs. Let me tell you something. I'm from Buenos Aires, and I say kill them all. Yeah! Oh, yeah! There's also, and I have to admit, I kind of missed this at first, like when there when there's that news broadcast later where they're talking about, you know, how these Mormon extremists went to this planet and all got destroyed. And the news is using it as this excuse to show all of these bodies being torn apart. And by the way, of the violence in this, it's like people in this movie do not just die. They always get painfully cut in half. It's always so oh, yeah. chaotic. It's haphazard. It's really, you know, it's nothing in this is pretty, but like. Mormon extremists, I kind of let that wash over me. I was like, all right, Mormon extremists. But like when you listen to what they're talking about, these Mormon extremists, as they're being described, were people who thought maybe there's a way to have a peaceful coexistence. Yes. Or like maybe this isn't as bad as you're telling us it is. And for that, they're getting called extremists. Pacifists are getting called extremists. Right. But that's that kind of subtle thing where it's like Verhoeven is refusing to hold anybody's hand. He's like, if you're not keeping up with every detail of this, you will not know what movie I'm making. I think it's a sad ending that like Johnny Rico's growth. And I know I said he didn't really have total growth, but I think this is a big moment for him is that he gets the promotion that he wants because we see him in the beginning shining a star and doing it. And, and his realization is just, I have this position until you find someone better or I die. And that little bit of knowledge that war is hell, that he is not anything special is maybe all the growth that we need. So maybe I take it back. Like that is the growth. Like he realizes I'm a blunt instrument and he will continue to be a blunt instrument. He's not going to, you know, become a hippie and fight against the war, but he's like, 
But that knowledge of that maybe makes him a better commander because he will be like Michael Ironside in the sense of, uh, I will take care of my people because I know that we are all just facing death or replacement. That's true. I mean, he does. It's like he says the same lines that he's been told and he can't say them with the same conviction, but he's trying. Yes. We're all these kids. We got reinforced. Most of them are fresh out of boot. We're the old men, Ace. This is for all you new people. I only have one rule. Everyone fights. No one quits. If you don't do your job, I'll kill you myself. Do you get me? We got you, sir! And you know what's interesting is that this movie was headed towards a different ending after this, where like he, really? he rescues Carmen from the cave. They do the whole scene of like, it's afraid. But then it was supposed to end more on Carmen and Rico kissing. Like he wins back the girl, you know? And, oh, interesting. And, and when they screened that at test audiences, people hated it. People really freaked out. They thought it was like, in this whole movie, that's about like, fascism and killing and being killed and all this violence, they thought that kiss was super immoral. The idea that like he could also, he could be kissing her and Dizzy in the same movie, that Carmen could be kissing, you know, two men in the same movie, like that kissing, a kiss was considered horrible and immoral. And they were so mad at her and this whole character of Carmen that like- Wait a second. People were mad at the woman for kissing? Right? Uh, I know Oh, no worries. People were mad at the whole character of Carmen because she cared more about her career than Rico. Like, test audiences were like, that girl's a bitch. We hate her. And by the way, she's only honest with him every fucking step of the way. Like, she's forced into saying- Every second of the way. Because she is. Like, she's she's forced into saying, I love you. She doesn't really lead him on. Like, and she's like, look, we're going to be far away. Like, she doesn't- she doesn't like she's on the level. Like it's yeah. it's interesting. Yeah. He doesn't even tell Dizzy he loves her. They have that exact same scene. He does the exact same thing. But people were just like, How dare that bitch be such a careerist? So they wanted like the test notes were all like, We wanted her to die too. Why didn't Carmen die? Carmen should have died. They're so mad. And one of the things that they did do was like they did go back and just cut out a lot of Denise Richards from this movie because people just hated that character so much. How dare this woman want to be a pilot? Be straightforward with this dude, not really think she loves him and want more to do with her life. How dare she? And like, I mean, one of the scenes that they lost when they turned back her part is this one that I think is interesting. It's from back when they're in high school and um, they have this conversation that sets up a little bit more of his dynamic with his parents. You can't come home with me. Why not? I thought you were going to help Carl. Carl can wait. Johnny, my dad's home today. What's his problem? He treats me like I'm a criminal. It's not you, it's your parents. They're not citizens. They have money, so they don't need to be citizens. If your dad doesn't like me, how can we get along so well? Sometimes I do what I want. I mean, I am curious about that. That's the thing that gets mentioned in this film, but maybe underplayed a little bit. This idea of Rico as a rich kid. Like, what does it add to this movie that he is just like this rich kid who like could just be going to college, even though it seems strange that this, I mean, I guess like, what am I talking about? Like dumb guys get into legacy schools all the time. Well, but I think it's also like money in this movie, like money in this movie doesn't equate to much because 
in this society, in this military society, being in war is more important. Like, I I almost feel like they are, look, that school in Buenos Aires, and by the way, the fact that it's Buenos Aires, I have a lot of questions about that. I got got questions. Um, But, you know, it it seems like a a private school. And when we first meet Michael Ironside, like he's talking to these private school kids, like, you know, you'll never know. You'll never know what it's like. And maybe they can buy their way into certain things and stuff like that. And so I think it's a really interesting idea that, you know, oftentimes I think the military or the common association with the military is it takes a lot of people who are from poorer backgrounds and forces them into this situation. Uh, this kind of does the reverse of it. All these kids seem really well off and the military is kind of convincing them to give up their life of leisure to be a grunt in this thing. It's a reverse idea here. You know, uh, it's taking advantage of the rich. Yeah. It makes me think of this story that my friend told me. Like I I have a good friend whose high school senior graduation year was 2001, 2002. So September 11th happened like September of her year. And she said her whole senior year was nothing but military recruiters coming to her school and being like, all of you kids have to sign up, do what you can. You have to join the military when you graduate. And like really pushing it on all of them. She's an artsy kid like me. And they were like, there's arts in the military. Join the military. You can do arts in the military. And like the hard sell she got, I found really fascinating. And it makes me wonder what this movie would look like if Verhoeven had actually gotten his way of casting actors even younger than these guys. Because like they're supposed to be playing 18, but of course they all look like, what, 25, 26? If If they looked legitimately 18, I wonder... I mean, I do think that would make the film feel even more horrific. Absolutely. That it's like kids getting this hard sell to be cannon fodder, to take a route that would completely derail their life. Violence is so commonplace here that there's a uh, a desensitized nature to it. Like when they first go to the camp, you know, uh, to train, you, you know, we have our commanding officer breaking a guy's arm. Then we have him throwing a knife through someone's hands. We have him fighting uh, Dina Meyer, like, and, and each one is a brutal battle, right? And he doesn't penalize anyone for giving it as hard as he does, but he doesn't hold back either. And I think part of this idea is like, where they're getting them so used to violence and seeing this and being normal that they won't freak out in this moment. But they really are just like the plan. Like you said, there's no military plan. The plan is like to drop them there and just see what happens like you know it's like what are we trying to do what is the goal like why are we what like just create like a star Wars system to destroy these asteroids like that's the easy answer why are we going there to stop the bugs like you know it yeah and um, they're doing all of this while making it also be like a game they're playing laser tag like this intelligence group that Neil Patrick Harris is in is called games in theory well until they're like laser tag game blows a guy's head off. Like I thought like they're also playing laser tag too because they're getting these like shocks, but then some guy's head is blown off. And then we get our, uh, in, you know, a grand tradition of RRR, our main character gets whipped in a public square, uh, 10 get lashes. that whip. But also that's a rite of passage there. It's like, hey, I did this too. It's good for you. Like it's good to be that way. You know, but it, we they're playing with their lives. Like you would never put anyone in a situation where their head would get blown off. Like, and his penalty is just getting 10 hits on the back. You know, meanwhile, the other person who shot the guy in the head, she's gone and she wanted to be a politician, right? Like she didn't do anything wrong either. Like that guy took off his helmet and, and Rico is more at fault. It's, 
nothing really makes sense. Like you're buying into this reality that they are creating for you. And I think uh, it is a reality of hyperviolence, low consequences, and you start to, I think, not care and, and, and you start to be stripped of your humanity. Well, yeah. And, and another kind of change that he makes related to that is these guys are supposed to be wearing like really intense militarized exosuits. Like that's one of the things that the actual book Starship Troopers is famous for is inventing this like hardcore, amazing, shiny armor skeleton, more like like an Iron Man outfit. It's kind of like they're all wearing Iron Man outfits before Iron Man or they're all dressed like Halo. And he took that away from this because he didn't, I think he just didn't want that extra little bit of coolness. Like he wanted it to be like humans doing things, humans getting hurt, not humans in really cool suits that are still looking awesome. I mean, in a way he like, right. de- he de-Robocopped it. Like if, if Robocop made that Robocop suit look so cool, you're like, well, it's not that I want to be a dead police officer turned into a robot but it is a pretty cool suit and it's neat how like the gun comes in and out of the thigh. I think he was very cautious about that. Like I'm not making another RoboCop. Like I'm doing something different here. Well, maybe the idea is very much like Tom Cruise made Born of the Fourth of July in response to Top Gun. Verhoeven is making Starship Troopers in response to RoboCop. RoboCop is is something that spawned multiple sequels as Starship Troopers has as well. But the point here is much more solid. The point here is, you know, I think in RoboCop, it's like corporations over people. Uh, I think this is military over people. And the idea, it's much more crystallized. It's a lot more straightforward. And it's less, I think he's making a movie where he's like, I don't think you want to be these people. But yet the seven sequels that they make, you know, uh, prove me wrong. But they are not as successful as the RoboCop ones, at least, you know. Um, And I think it is. I think it is like, oh, people aren't getting me. I'm going to go over the top with it. And maybe in going over the top with it, people start to go, well, that's a bad actor. We don't realize he's making a propaganda film that's kind of showing you this other side of it. It's really interesting. Like, I feel like he's course correcting, but yet, you know. Well, yeah, totally. And like, this is so personal to him. Like, we talked about this in the RoboCop episode that like, he grew up in Amsterdam, you know, during the occupation of the Nazis, you know, living, he only lived like right around the corner from the Nazi headquarters at The Hague. So like this was ground zero from him. The first movies that Verhoeven ever saw were German propaganda movies because that was all that was playing when he was a child. Wow. He didn't get to see other movies besides that. So when he's referencing stuff like, you know, Triumph of the Will here, those are his touchstone movies. That's like what he had to see. Like he didn't get to see, you know, other Hollywood movies until like the end of the war. And then he said like, finally, when other movies did make it to Holland, like he went like three, four times a week, but he lived on B movies. So it makes sense that this, that that Starship Troopers is like this perfect blend of B movie and propaganda film. You know, we've played like propaganda films on this show before. I mean, recently when we were doing Porco Rosso, we played a little bit of like a Japanese animated propaganda film that was made. I mean, propaganda is a weapon used by every side. I mean, we were making it too during World War II. I mean, I, here's a clip of a, of a movie that was shown here called Know Your Enemy, Japan! Exclamation point. There should have been neither consternation nor surprise when Japan attacked in the Pacific. For the world has seldom known a nation so consistently predatory. And we were making these propaganda films like all the way up through Vietnam. And, and I mean, honestly, we still are, just not quite in the same right. way or tone. Um I think it's just important to point out how how universal of a weapon this is so that I don't sound like only the Nazi Nazis use right, propaganda. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, you know, I totally get that. Yeah. 
But when this movie came out, I mean, it was the Nazi propaganda that really freaked out the studio. They're like, you know, the symbol that he uses for the news network is basically like the Nazi eagle sign. And they're like, how how could you put this in the film? And he's like, it's not that logo. It's a different color than that logo. It's completely different. And they're like, we don't trust you. I mean, his whole argument for how this movie even got through the studio is that the studio went through like five regime changes between when he first like, you know, suggested it to them and when it was made. So he said nobody working at the studio really had any sense of what was happening. Like nobody had really read the script or was that aware of even what was going on. It, even it, it, it's not like he like hid the satire from them. I mean, when he first showed them a clip of what he thought the movie would look like before they even greenlit it, he made this test video of like a fighter running around in a desert, going up a hill, getting attacked by this bug. It, it, it what it ended with is the actor getting straight up murdered by this bug. So he never hid that he was making a movie where like the heroes were going to get brutally killed. But it did still come across to the studio and all critics as a surprise. Well, I think the thing is, he made an adult movie. This movie is rated R. And I get that, that this, yeah, that's the right rating for this movie. But if this movie was rated PG-13, I think it would have been a much bigger hit because I think the discerning taste of a 13-year-old would have propelled this to be a to be a blockbuster because that's how this movie, I think, first starts to come into the zeitgeist. The reason why there are all these sequels is because it was a big home video take. It was like kids are watching it. Now, the New York Times did a thing, an article about like how easy it is to sneak into an R-rated movie. And um, they were trying to see how many kids would sneak into uh, Bean, like the Rowan Atkinson movie, you know, Mr. Bean, I, I believe. Did you hear this story? I did. You know, I will say I've been unable to verify it. I saw, I okay. read about it in an interview, but I couldn't find the article in the New York Times because I, I wanted to find the actual one. Yeah, so I think the explanation for why people say it didn't do well is because uh, people were in the seats. They just weren't buying the tickets for it. And it was something that I did at that age, too. When, it, you, when you couldn't get into an R-rated movie, you would buy one for a PG movie, and then you'd sneak over to the next one. So, I mean, I don't know if I totally buy that. That feels very Trumpy. Like, we had the biggest audiences in the world. We just didn't sell the right tickets for it. You know, it's like... but. I mean, there are so many of these uh, Starship Trooper movies. Starship Trooper 2, Hero of the Federation, came out in 2004, many years later. Starship Troopers 3, Marauder. Then there are animated ones, Starship Troopers Invasion and Starship Troopers Traitor of Mars. And as uh, late as 2017. So these movies are coming out. Now, I don't know if any of them carry... Uh, any of the this idea with them as well. But, I mean, you know, that's all... You know, for this movie to make five that's a five is a lot i know I, I have not seen enough of them to know if it got robocopped like out of any sort of recognizability recognizability of its original theme or not but i did put on just the opening credits of one of the ones like an animated show that because yeah. it had paul verhoven listed as an executive producer it's called like roughnecks the starship troopers chronicles have not seen it but i do feel like the theme song absolute banger Oh, man, that's awesome. <laughs> well, okay. Talking about like other weird sitcom connections, though, I have one that I have to mention. Sure. 
You know, early on in the movie when they're still at school and they have that biology teacher who's like yelling them at them about like how insects are wonderful and seeming like she's describing a society that she wishes all these humans were living in too? Yeah. Oh, oh come on. It's just a bug. You better put your goggles on. Just the bug. <laughs> we humans like to think we are nature's finest achievement. I'm afraid it just isn't true. This archaic sand beetle is superior in many ways. It reproduces in vast numbers, has no ego, has no fear, doesn't know about death, and so is the perfect selfless member of society. But humans have created art, mathematics, and interstellar travel. True, but before you let that go to your head, take the example of the arachnids, a highly evolved insect society. By human standards, they are relatively stupid. But their evolution stretches over millions of years. And now, Here, take this. they can colonize planets by hurling their spore into space. Underneath all that makeup, do you know who that actress is? No. It is beloved golden girl, Rue McClanahan. Oh my gosh. Whoa, uh-huh, really? Uh-huh. Rue McClanahan, Blanche herself. Wow, that's fascinating. I didn't know that. You know, I'm thinking about this movie and I think that, you know, we're looking at it from this point of view. I think that a lot of cultural critics also are on our same page. But I think at the root of it, why this movie is popular is because it's fun to kill bugs, right? It's fun to kill these things, these hordes. And I was like, oh, my gosh, you know what? Isn't that just Halo, one of the most popular video games of all time? Faceless character killing slugs and bugs. And there is something about this idea. I mean, Halo is the same thing. Like you're just kind of a killing machine, just going through, you're killing multiple things and it it doesn't mean anything. It's not like Call of Duty where there are some stakes and consequences. Granted, not that much, but, but like it is something like there is this want for us to just, you know, or this lack of empathy, you know, and, and, you know, these games that we have where it's like, I'm just killing everything, you know, it's like, and it doesn't mean (laughs) anything. I don't know. I just was looking at like, there yeah. is a visceral thing here. And I think that that's why the, why all of this is successful too. I mean, we're talking about spinoffs and sequels and connections, but this is something that's in our culture and continues to be in our culture. Yeah, it's almost like, it makes me think of like Nuke, the board game in RoboCop. You know, yeah. like it's a game. Well, I mean, I will say, look, I know that video games take a very long time to come out. This uh, Halo comes out in 2001. I can't not think that whoever was making Halo at the time was in part inspired by this movie. The the outfit, just the outfits and the, and the you know, they're not bug creatures, but they're slug creatures. I, I, I think it's definitely a part of it. I think I won't disagree with you. I think you're probably right. But I do think that this is, you know, a movie that is, uh, and I think if you've not listened to a Paul Verhoeven commentary track, you got to do yourself a favor. You got to get on those because they are wonderful. And he is a very interesting guy as we've talked about and i think even with a movie like showgirls he can really break down and i love this idea that like in 2001 that's really where this movie starts to shift in the zeitgeist this is like all of a sudden people are seeing like this connection for what's happening here and the war on terror like right after 9-11 we are sending we want to go off we want to create pain for these people who hurt us, right? It's it's not enough. And that's why I talked about Abu Ghraib. I talked about like uh, these black sites. I've talked about, you know, this idea like we want to, we don't want to just kill. We want to 
make people suffer. And that's at the same time where internet culture and things are popping up and, and more and more and more. So it's interesting in 2001, people are like, oh, look at this. It's the same way we looked at idiocracy, I think, during the Trump administration, where you're like, oh, wait a second. Are we getting stupider? You know, and uh, and then all of a sudden, this thing starts to happen where it's like, okay, now all of a sudden, this is one of the 100 best films of the 90s. Wait, what? This movie that no one liked? Or, and The Guardian is saying, like, this isn't science fiction. This is reality. And The New Yorker is like, this is visionary. This is, you know, it's like, but I think what's interesting is with Verhoeven is he saw the future, but no one could acknowledge that, that what he was seeing because it just was too early. We hadn't been in a war. We didn't understand that idea. We're like, oh, we're above it. We're above it. And we were not, at least as Americans, uh, we were not above it. We were like, let's go. Let's go and bomb and let's have our president in a, in a, uh, in a flight suit. And, you know, and these are not people, right? Like it became like, these are not people. And you're like revel in a story where it's like, oh, they get tortured listening to Barney songs 24 hours a day, you know, and, and it's like, how dare they, we're going to get them back. You know, it's, it's, it's really, yeah, it's really interesting. No, you're so right. Like, I mean, this is not the first movie by far we've done on the show where there was like a radical critical reappraisal, but it is probably the one where the where the gap between like this movie sucks and this movie is brilliant is shorter than all of the rest of them. I mean, we are talking like four years. Like you cannot, there is no way of underplaying how horrible the reviews were for this movie. Like, I'll just read you like a quick one sentence montage of a bunch of negative reviews of this, most of which focused on the actors. The actors really were kind of the cannon fodder for this film. They took a lot of the brunt of the hate. Um, they called, the critics called it a veritable Alpha Century 90210. They said the actors look like they just stepped out of a Mountain Dew commercial. They said the actors have seemingly been grown in the silicone, airbrush, and plastic surgery section of the Hollywood hatchery. Uh, they say the acting by all concern makes the cast of Melrose Place look like the Royal Shakespeare Company. Um, one critic rated it half a star for the sucking out of the brain of one of those people who call themselves actors. There should have been more. The troopers deserve to die. Uh, somebody said not worth renting, even for the gratuitous breasts. And somebody cited another critic bursting through the screening room door, shouting to anyone who would listen. It sucks. It sucks. And critics at the time, even those who were like, this feels weird, it feels strange, felt like they had a hard time planting their feet and saying, yes, I can see what Verhoeven is trying to do. The review that really stands out to me is Richard Sickle, who like said, you know, with a lot of uncertainty, he said that this movie has quote, the kind of, quote, lowbrow rhetoric, hysterical jingoism we haven't heard issuing from movie screens since World War II. It's Starship Troopers contains an unexplored premise. In short, we are looking at a happily fascist world. Maybe that's the movie's final deadpan joke. Maybe it's just saying that war inevitably makes fascists of us all. Or best guess, maybe the filmmakers are so lost in the slam bang of visual effects that they don't give a hoot about the movie's scariest implications. I love that review because it, it he, it's like he sees exactly what is happening on screen, but he can't quite give the movie credit for right. doing it deliberately. And then the week after the movie comes out, there's a write-up in the Washington Post that's not a review. It's an editorial that Verhoeven considered the death knell for anybody seeing the movie that he had actually tried to make. Um, And this person writes, Silly me, I thought the Nazis lost the war. 
But here is the exceedingly strange new movie Starship Troopers commandeering 22 million American dollars in its first weekend and certain to make gobs more while secretly whispering Sig Heil. It is an epic of bug blasting, a movie whose script appears to have been the instructions on a can of Raid. And in some profoundly disturbing way, it is Nazi to the core. It is spiritually Nazi. It is psychologically Nazi. It comes directly out of the Nazi imagination, and it is set in the Nazi universe. And the writer went on to say that he could imagine 97-year-old Heinrich Himmler, if he was still alive and hiding out, watching this movie 14 times. When that editorial came out, it did the thing that sometimes has happened to a film where like there's one piece of writing about it that just gets so elevated that from then on, all the discourse about the movie is just forced to react to it. So that comes out, Verhoeven goes to Europe to tour the movie, and he has to just continually respond to this accusation that he's made a Nazi film. And he's like, but that's the point. And the people are like, no, it's a Nazi film. And no, it feels like nobody hears him. And he gets really frustrated and specifically points to that mo- that write-up for being the reason why, after commandeering $22 million American dollars in its first weekend, it did not make gobs more. I think sometimes, and we're getting more and more in this way where there's so much information out there that we're not having a chance to, to digest certain things. So we just take them at face value. So I think we are losing satire. I think that we get it in writing. I think that there is great satire to be had, but it, it, uh, if it walks a line and it's not banging you over the head, it runs this risk of being another Starship Troopers, which is like the cast was picked very specifically. The budget looks great. This movie holds up. It's 1997. Now it's 2022. Like it works. This movie feels as relevant as it did then, but it's, it's interesting that we are losing the ability to be sarcastic or to not have to yell what the point is. Yeah. Right. And, and, and even like, you know, uh, Devin and I were talking about this the other day. I think, you know, I love uh, Better Call Saul. I think it's a great show. I feel like the energy around Better Call Saul ha- is an amazing group of fans, but it doesn't feel like the energy around uh, Breaking Bad. I think that show is, it might even be better than Breaking Bad. I think it is, but, the, but there is something about it. I think it's a complex show. I think it's like, there's a lot of things going on and I think it's a little too, challenging and the reveals and the shocks are not as visceral uh in action like breaking bad was and i think that that actually is kept people away because i'm like oh do you watch it like oh i mean to watch it yeah i hear it's good and and but the legion of fans that are behind it are great but it's like it's a show that does require you to watch it does require you to lean in and i and i think we're losing more of those shows for more spectacle and big and this is what it is this is what we're doing black and white here it is monster did it defeated it done you know yeah like did I did I talk to you about the movie Dashcam? Did I bring this up no. with you? Okay. So do you remember that there was a movie that came out in early pandemic called like Host or the Host? And it was like a horror movie that was a, over Zoom. Do you remember that yes, one? Yes, 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 I do. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was really good. The director made another film that came out a couple months ago called Dashcam, where it's another found footage horror film about a person driving around in like a car with a, with a, with a dashboard on it thing, um, recording what's happening to her. And it is really good. And really funny and really shocking. And part of the shock of it is that this person at the center who you, oh, you kind of can't even call a heroine because she's like Mm -hmm. a very mean person and mean to people is also like an anti-vaxxer and kind and Trumpy. And she wears like a MAGA hat and she's, she does terrible things. You know, she coughs in people's faces on purpose. She's like very mad about the whole pandemic, you know. 
But and so it's this character going through, you know, a, a really horrible, bloody night. And like the fact that she is this kind of a personality, like so, you know, deeply selfish in the way that she acts, adds this really fascinating dimension to the movie. Like I've really got into watching it because like her selfishness helps and is also her curse and is everything and makes it like very complicated. But this movie got really bad reviews basically just because of the politics. It was like, I don't want to see a character who even thinks like this on the screen, let alone if you're doing something interesting about it, let alone if it's adding a dimension to the film. I don't want to see this character on a screen and I want this character to die. And I thought that was just a fascinating reaction that I keep thinking about, you know, because it, it it's like... I do find it to be kind of a lack of trust in a director and a lack of trust in a point that, they, that they're trying to make. Like that there's a lack of trust that you can be putting something unpleasant out there for a purpose, you know? Like, and, yeah. And it kind of bummed me out. It made me feel like there's a lack of empathy or curiosity, a lack of wanting to dig into something, wanting to think about an idea longer than surface of like MAGA person gets terrorized. Like, yeah. I, want, I want more from audiences, man, myself included. I feel like I'm saying this out loud because I feel like I have to continually remind myself of this, too. Like, I feel like you have to stay active about trying not to just fall into lazy reactions. Yeah. And I, and I think that, you know, we are, you know, in this world where we also are having, I think, the most interesting things to say about society coming out through horror films. You know, and I think that those are often films that can work on both levels. You can leave very satisfied at a horror film. And then also you can look back and go like, oh, that's what it was. Like that movie X that just came out. Um, oh, yeah. You know, I thought that was really, really well done. Really interesting. Reminded me very much of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, and then, uh, you know, I think Jordan Peele, obviously with Nope and everything. Like there these movies that are like, there's a, there's a thing. There are things there. There's always a bigger idea going on in some of our best horror films. But I think horror films can get away with it more than comedies and more than action movies because it will still be scary. And if you don't get why it's happening or what it's trying to tell you, it, it still worked. And you leave going, oh, that was good. That was scary. You know, <laughs> I'm not just saying it's like meta, but it's like, oh, you can hide in just like Star Trek did. Like Star Trek hid in these great messages and that's not sat. And these are not sat. This is not satire. This is a commenting on society. You know, like I remember they. You're talking about this woman in dashcam. Like, remember they made that movie Karen. Like at the height of the pandemic, like we're making a movie called Karen now. And it's like, you could talk about society, and you can feel these ways, and you can kind of get at a more visceral reaction. But it's not. It's commenting. What is commenting versus satire? I, you know, I think satire is more comedy based. I think this is actually a pretty funny movie too, you know, and and in some of the ways that Casper Van Diem is a little dead in the face, like when his parents die, like it's like there's nothing there. There's like it's, it's I don't know. <laughs> I mean, whatever it is, I'm really glad that our miniseries on heroism has taken us to this point because yes, I I I I appreciate that we are watching movies that talk about heroism in a way that feels really confusing and murky, and the. Uh, Murkiness makes me feel alive, man. I uh, agree. All right. Well, Amy, it was a great time to go for two weeks of Verhoeven. And now we're going to do something really interesting. And we're talking about this bridging this gap between heroes and villains. Like we started off our summer talking about heroes and what makes a good hero. And now we've kind of uh, started going into this murkier area. Well, who's a hero? Who's a villain? Is a hero 
can a hero become a villain? You know, because I mean, what do you think? Are Starship Troopers heroes or villains? We don't know enough information to know. Uh, you know, I mean, we oh, don't maybe, know. Maybe they're everything. Maybe, maybe they're doing villainous things, imagining themselves the heroes, but victims of a society. They do. They think they're doing it for the right reason. I don't know. I don't know. It's so complicated. But I do know that Verhoeven had this to say about villains when he was figuring out how to how to make a villain here. He said, you cannot make a movie today with the Japanese or the Germans as the bad guys because to say foul things about them is already incorrect. But if it's big insects that you shoot to pieces, nobody cares. So that is the statement that Starship Troopers makes. We like enemies. So I think as we go into our villain section, I, I want to keep that idea in mind of liking enemies. Like, are there villains who are so likable that we like them even more than the rest of the movie? That we're rooting for them? Like, are, or, or, or what? I don't even know what we're going to discover because we haven't even figured out everything we're going to talk about. But I think we're going to get into a movie that kind of bridges a gap in an interesting way. A movie with great heroes and great villains. And we're going to talk about it. We're going to do something that we have never really done here on the show with two fellas who uh, who really not only have a passion for this film, but also uh, are going to have a lot of opinions uh, because next episode, we're going to be sitting down with Roger Avery and Quentin Tarantino, uh, who have a brand new podcast called Video Archive. And we're going to talk about The Three Musketeers, the Richard Lester directed Three Musketeers. The Three Musketeers and the Four Musketeers, the sequel that they crammed in using the same footage. Wait, what? Oh, yeah. All right. You got me excited. Take a listen to a trailer. On guard for The Three Musketeers. The world's most popular novel is now an eye-popping, swashbuckling, side-splitting screen spectacular. Full of action, romance, danger, chivalry, intrigue, adventure, and fun. With a glittering cast of international stars, Oliver Reed, Raquel Welch, Richard Chamberlain, Michael York, Frank Finley, Christopher Lee, Geraldine Chaplin, Jean-Pierre Cassell, Simon Ward, Faye Dunaway, Charlton Heston. It's all for fun and fun for all. The Three Musketeers, rated PG. I am very excited about this movie because in watching that and and seeing that, I'm like, what is this going to be? Uh, this was not picked by us. This was, uh, you know, this is as we were trying to talk about ideas. Uh, this is an idea that the 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 guys wanted to talk about with us because it is a movie that is full of great characters. So I'm looking forward to that conversation. Yeah. And uh, I am excited because we touched on this movie at the very start of our heroism series, talking about Superman. That this is the movie that insp- that the producers did before they did Superman, and it inspired them to think franchise as soon as they got into this movie from the beginning. Well, so there's roots in our whole series that they just happen to pick out by coincidence. Uh, I love it. And you know, I'm a big fan of Richard Lester and we talked about him and Superman too. So um, Amy, so much fun to chat with you about Verhoeven. I kind of want to do Basic Instinct now and I want to I I look at all of these movies. But I, I also I want to remind everybody to check out our uh, store on TeePublic. You can go to tpublic.com uh, slash store slash unspooled see what we have in there we have nothing new yet but if you have ideas uh, make sure you mention them on our discord keep the conversation going on a discord which is discord.gg slash paul Shear. in there is a whole section for unspooled there's also uh, a great community 
on Facebook that's been existing since the beginning and on uh, Twitter and Instagram. So uh, pass around our videos, tell people about the show. If you listen to us on Apple, make sure you are following us. And a big uh, thank you to uh, our producer, Josh and Devin, uh, our uh, in, uh, our engineer, Ryan, our uh, of course, our MVP, uh, Molly, another producer, Molly Reynolds, and uh, and, uh, and and Jeff Gross, who's been cutting together uh, some of our great pieces. We got a great team here. We got a great team. We love everybody at uh, at Earwolf and uh, and our intern, Jacob Morton. So we've been having a, a good run of things. Amy, I'm reminding everybody that I am on tour with How Did This Get Made in August. Go check out hdtgm.com for the movies and the venues that we're playing. We're going right up the center of America in the hottest time. It's going to be rough. Uh, all right, so we will see you next week for the three musketeers and to sit down with uh quentin and roger is going to be a blast uh i think between the four of us we'll all have about maybe uh five sentences each i think that i think we'll be (laughs) battling we'll be battling for space in that one uh all right so uh that'll be exciting we'll bring our swords i'm ready see you next week BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.